When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional homeland of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota and Dene peoples, otherwise known as First Nations. This is also the birthplace and homeland of the Red River Métis Nation. Hello everyone, welcome to a very special edition of Hewitt Home. We are breaking down the myths. So, history books, television, and the wonderful world of digital social media. Well, that's how we get our news today and how we might perceive what's going on in the world. So, what is the truth? What is really going on? Today you're going to meet four amazing women. They're sharing their lived experiences and they'll give us an inside look at to some of the issues facing humanity today. So I'd like to, first of all, welcome all of our audience here too as well. Uh, you all have pens and paper, and that's your job to make notes, um, make some questions, or if there's anything in particular, once you hear their stories, something maybe that resonates with you and that you need to find out more because this is what it's all about, engaging in conversation. So I'm going to get the ball rolling. Each guest is going to talk, and then we are all going to be able to ask our questions. And I've got Junko Bailey here. She is an actor. She's a member of the Japanese Cultural Association of Manitoba. Right beside me, I have the lovely Yulia Kovalenko. She's a newcomer from Ukraine, and she also works at the U Channel, multicultural channel, too, as well. And I have Rebecca Chartrand. She is CEO of Indigenous Strategy Alliance. And next to her is Heba Abd El Hamid. <laughs> and uh, she is one dynamite lady. Uh, she's a business owner, entrepreneur, and she's also a graduate of Peace and Conflict Studies from the University of Manitoba. All of these women come with a lot of experience, and I hope that you, uh, when you hear their stories, you're as moved as I have been just getting to know them. So I'm going to start with Junko, because Junko and I actually have a little bit of a relationship. I guess we're the co-conspirators of this whole idea of breaking down the myths. Junko, I want you to tell your story, uh, but first of all, too, you are the organizer of Lanterns for Peace. And this is what culminated in where we are today. Yeah, so thank you for having me, and uh, nice to meet you all. My name is Junko Bailey. As I was introduced, I'm uh, a Japanese-Canadian, but I am originally from Japan. I'm from Nagasaki, and I moved here in 98. Been here for about 25 years. And uh, as I uh, start to uh, uh, learn about uh, Winnipeg and uh, culture, and history of Japanese Canadians, I uh, start to wonder about my identity as a Japanese person in Canada. And when I had my uh, children, I have two boys, uh, nine and six, 
I really start to think about their identity as a half Japanese person growing up in Canada. And I thought, okay, how do I, how do I teach them about my background and my culture, my history? And I uh, started to get involved with the uh, group called Peace Alliance Winnipeg. And they're the one who have uh, been held, holding the uh, a ceremony every year on August 6th or August 9th. It's called a Lantern for Peace. And that's to commemorate the, uh, the atomic bombing in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So I'm from Nagasaki, growing up in Japan. I learned a lot about the, uh, the war, the Second World War. My grandfather died in the Pacific somewhere. So my father, he did not uh, know his own father. I think my father was about five when his uh, dad died. So I didn't know anything about my grandfather. And I start to find out from my family and relatives what the uh, effect of the war and how the atomic bombing was affecting my, uh, my father's side family. So uh, I was hosting the uh, Lantern for uh, Peace. I was emceeing the Lantern for Peace ceremony last few years. And through this uh, opportunity, I met many people who were uh, concerned about the war and concern about the atomic bombing, that the threats that still exist in this world, and it's not about some history back in like 70 some years ago, that we are still facing, and not immediate right now in Winnipeg, but then when you think about it, we hear all these stories from people, the news, the, um, the refugees and immigrants from Ukraine, they are escaping that eminent threat by the, the war. And I don't want to make this um, conversation as a political conversation. This is a personal experience and personal story. So I wanted to bring that uh, awareness and maybe some of the story that you never hear on the news or never read it on any website or Facebook or Instagram because that's, again, that's uh, very limited. Um, information out there. So I hope this uh, today's panel discussion will bring more realistic personal story to everyone that uh, listening to us and then maybe ask questions to dig out more. So uh, I hope this uh, opportunity will be uh, something that we can all take uh, home and then pass it on to uh, friends and family. So, Junko, let's talk about your dad and some of the stories that you've heard uh, about the whole experience, the aftershock, the aftermath, and probably things that are still going on for people living in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. So, uh, my, my father, his family was uh, luckily evacuated from the city of Nagasaki at the, the, the time of the bombing in August of 1945. They moved to uh, uh, a different city called Kumamoto. That was his mother's side family. So that, uh, he, he was lucky to be away from the city. But my, uh, my uncle and his family was uh, in Nagasaki City. And one of my uncle's uh, brother was uh, going to uh, university in Nagasaki. And he was uh, affected by the bombing. He didn't uh, die right away, but two days after he passed away because of the radiation. So, 
every year the memorial will be held on the August 6th and August 9th in uh, a memorial park in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they keep adding the list of the, uh, um, the victims to the uh, memorial because people are still dying from the radiation illness. And now there are people in 80s, they live up to the 80s, but they suffer with the effect of the bombing, the, the radiation illness, like leukemia. So uh, the trauma is continued to be there and we don't really hear about it in maybe North America. And depending on what news articles or books that you, you know, come across, these things probably never been talked about. And, and I remember one child uh, a few years ago, he was uh, trying to finish his school project and he chose atomic bombing. He was grade four, local school in Winnipeg, and he reached out to me uh, through cultural center, and he wanted to know about atomic bombing. And I asked him, why did you choose this topic? And first he said, because it's cool. And I thought, okay, lot to talk about here. And you know, fourth grader, nine-year-old, of course, bombing, shooting, guns, all cool stuff from their point of view, because it's exploding, it's exciting. But for him to start from that place and learn about the history, I think he made a big transition, because I saw him in his own face changes as I was telling him the story, from his excitement, that innocent excitement, to like, oh, something clicked. And I'm glad he chose that topic because that was an amazing opportunity for him to learn about the effect of uh, aggression, a small effect of somebody holding a gun to the, the extreme of uh, one button to the atomic bomb, what would happen to the people. So uh, I, I felt good sharing that history, part of the history, and you can learn all about that detail on website, you know, how many people died, what was the affected area, Google, everything's there. But the story from the people who were actually there, lived through, walked through the debris of the burned body and the smell and people still living but almost dying, screaming, walk through that debris and look for your family that is the trauma that people don't hear about and then the survivor probably don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I felt that learning from this story from my uncles, that was uh, something that will be, you know, in me forever. And I'd like to, maybe that's my responsibility here in Winnipeg to pass on that information or the story that I've learned, yeah. And then talk about, too, uh, the stories that your dad has told as a young boy, the Americans come in, mm -hmm. and how they treated the Japanese. Yeah, so, uh, the, of course, after the war in 1945, the Japan lost, American troops came to land to occupy, and uh, uh, soldiers driving in a jeep, open jeep, and driving around in a uh, burned city, 
and my dad and his friends were chasing around after those uh, uh, soldiers asking for chocolate and they will throw out Hersey's chocolate from the back of the van here, chuck it. And my dad's first uh, English word he learned was give me chocolate. That was it. Because they were so hungry and they knew that American soldier will throw chocolate at the kids. And I thought that's so sad and disrespectful. At the same time, they're so desperate to have anything, any sweets. There was no sweets for the kids. And I'm sure the adult watching them chase the Jeep, they, they used to be enemy. And I thought, what a, what a conflict and what a period that they went through. And my father just passed away this uh, the past uh, February. He was 82. And uh, think about his life from that, you know, five-year-old little little guy to 82-year-old man who went through this uh, yeah, periods of different technology advancement and uh, Japan rising from the ashes to the, the advanced technological com country and all the influences to the world. And I was wondering after he passed away, like, wow, what a, what a uh, life that he had and what he went through and the legacy he left behind. So I felt more somehow a different way of grieving for me, I think, to think about his life. And um, yeah, so then the reason why I'm in Canada is maybe, yeah, I, I have the task to uh, yeah, remember him that way and talk about his story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you have any questions for Junko ladies? No, just thank you for sharing. I mean, it's such an important story. Thank you. Yeah, so. Um, when I want to pass on to Yulia, the atomic bombing is, that's the threat and uh, war going on between Russia and Ukraine. That's, that's such a hard uh, reality and we don't really think about it, but now we do want to think about what is the effect, what is the power that they're holding and why is this still a threat? It was, they, we knew that it's already really bad for the humanity and the, the effect of the bombing in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We want the Nagasaki to be the last city to be affected by the bombing and not anymore. No more victims from this terrible weapon. So uh, now you're here escaping from all that terrible stuff happening in your country. So I wanted to pass on to you. Yeah. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you everyone who joined us today. Thank you that you understand that the importance of this event and the power of this event. Um, as a Ukrainian woman who fled the war, I have witnessed the devastation it brings and the irreparable damage to my beautiful country. So, yeah, and thank you so much, Tracy, for providing me the opportunity to share the truth about the war in Ukraine, because unfortunately, now we're seeing fewer and fewer news about Ukraine on TV, on social medias, in newspapers. Um, but I think it's still the topic number one should be everywhere. 
So let me tell a bit about myself. My name is Yulia Kovalenko. I grew up in Pavlograd, a cozy town in central east Ukraine. At 17, I moved to Kiev. And even though moving to a new city has been challenging for me, but I really love this place. And just, it took me like more than a year to adjust to a new city, to a new life. And just a few months before the war started, I finally felt like I was at home. Like I loved people who surrounded me. I loved my university studies. I loved everything. I really loved my life there. And on February 24, 2022, my life changed forever. I woke up at 4 a.m. from the sound of explosions and a single thought it started. And since then, my life never was previous. And I don't want to remember that day again because it's very hard experience for me. Um, When the war started, yeah, we moved to the basement. We slept four days in the basement. We had no food. We had no electricity. And I, we slept on the floor. My friend who has a friend in Poland and relatives in Poland suggested we go there for safety. And I spent next three months in Poland. And after that, I landed in Canada. And Canada gave me lots of new opportunities, actually. And I'm very grateful for that because I found a job very quickly. I met beautiful people. Uh, but along with all this new experience, also I got a strong feeling like loneliness. I didn't know anyone in this new country and no one knew me here. I couldn't share all my emotions and feelings with the anyone. And I didn't want to burn to my parents, uh, telling them how difficult life is here for me in Canada, because they were already in stress. And I'm aware of struggles my parents are going through right now. So I just had to keep everything inside me. And yeah, Junko already talked about uh, consequences and the realities of the atomic bombings. But as a woman who know the reality and who have witnessed, I want to bring up this topic once again because I can't stay silent. So as you might know, today the modern world is closer to a nuclear war than ever before. Now as Russia attempts to annex the occupied Ukrainian territories, Putin and like many other Russian politicians has repeatedly threatened a nuclear strike. And Russia already put its nuclear arsenal on high alert since the early days of the war. Like people there in Ukraine, they are they're always thinking about that. They can't they can't be safe. Like someone sometimes people ask me how your parents are doing there, how your friends are doing there and like they some cities is pretty safe i would say but nobody can be 100 percent safe when rockets flying in the sky 
when there is always a chance of a nuclear strike. And nuclear, like every kind of the war is always a tragedy, but when nuclear weapons are involved, it becomes even more devastating. And I think nuclear war is, affects everyone, everyone, regardless of age, gender, ethnicity, it brings suffering, it brings lots of pain, it separates families. So I think we should know, know about that and the terrible, horrifying consequences that goes along with that. So let me go back to my story. Um, when I moved here, I think even though I went through difficulties and challenges, um, I couldn't admit the fact that I'm facing difficulties here because I understand that compared to the difficulty that people in Ukraine are going through right now, my problem here, like, it's nothing, just nothing, because people lost their houses, people lost their family member, loved ones, people don't have be even like basic food like bread, they sleep on the floor, they have no electricity. So like many people, hundreds, hundreds young people my age have died in Ukraine. And when I realized that I could be on their place, I immediately understand that I have no right to complain because I'm safe, I have a house, I have food to eat, like, I can say that I'm super lucky and I'm very grateful for that. And I appreciate that. And when people, like when I say people that I came to Canada alone without my parents, they are, their first reaction is, you're so brave, you're so strong. But I don't think so, because the strong are young men who are risking their lives, fighting on the front line, all the young women who voluntarily joined them. And I'm safe. So I think I'm very fortunate. Yeah, I think that's it, what I want to share. Oh, well, Yulia, that, that's so beautiful. And I'm just thinking too, I, I really appreciate you all coming here because we've lived through a pandemic and we've gone out of it, but it's just so much easier, I think, to live in our bubble to just sit down on the couch with a good book, maybe a glass of wine and just not go anywhere and then maybe flip on your phone and get the news or whatever of what's going on. But to hear these stories in person, Yulia, incredible, Junko, I mean, you're here for a reason to share your information and, you know, and hopefully, so I'm going to open it up to our audience. Do you have any questions so far for either Junko or Yulia? Please let me know. Marley's here. Marley's my cousin, <laughs> the famous, the famous Mike girl. And I have to say, welcome to the Japanese Cultural Center. They've been so kind to use, uh, let us use this. And I think it's very fitting. A cultural center is a, a safe haven for all cultures. And I think, as Winnipeggers, we, you know, we pride ourselves in that too as well. So if you have any questions right now for Yulia or for any of these other ladies, we haven't heard yet from Rebecca and Heba, but we will. 
don't be shy. Um, Junko, I was going to ask you if I can, your dad passing away, our sympathies, was it from the aftermath of the atomic bomb that uh, he passed no, or no? He, um, he suffered from dementia for many years, last uh, 10 years or so. Um, it was the, uh, caused by the, um, the car accident actually. Yeah, when, when my first son was born, they, my parents came here to see me and you know, their, their first grandson, and I'm only child. So, and I, uh, I was uh, struggling to, to get pregnant. So for first time, first like a miracle baby after IVF and all that stuff, that's another uh, story. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was so fortunate to be able to uh, have a, a baby and I was 38 or so. And my parents came, so they stayed with us and then my mom helped me. And after they left, a month after, my father got hit by a car. Oh, no. On a, yeah, at the, um, yeah. So uh, then after that, he, he sort of recovered, but then the, the damage, mm -hmm. the brain damage is still there. And then that became the dementia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he was okay at home, but then last few years he was at the uh, old folks home. And last summer he got COVID at the, the care home and that really took the, his uh, energy out. He was, before that, he was okay, you know, eating and walking, but after that, it just, everything was sort of, yeah, taken what away. Of, what did they think of Canada when they came? They thought it was very flat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I drove them, we drove them out to the outskirts, yeah. and then just, just, you know, 10, 15 minutes outside of Winnipeg, and then you see that straight line, though horizon, no buildings, just some trees and flat. Maybe that was a canola field or flax field, the beautiful yellow and the purple. And they were stunned because they could not see the mountain. They could not see a building. And they were so surprised how vast this, this land and uh, the, just the, so different from Japan. Oh my goodness. So, yeah. And, and you, Ria, how are your parents doing? My parents are missing me. Well, That's yeah. the number one thing that, like, my mom always tell me. The first, the, her first thing is like, "I miss you." <laughs> and uh, yeah, my father and my young brother also in Ukraine. I try to help them as much as possible, and I try. I think what would I, what I want to say that, like, we are living in different countries, and I am away from my parents, like, eight thousand kilometers and I think it's even strengthened our relationship because now we are so supportive to each other like when I lived with my parents I see them every day it's like some some common things but now like every we if I call my mom we spend like two three hours four hours but yeah I think I became more closer to my mom and she's trying to support me as much as possible. Like she replies to my every Instagram story, like <laughs> lots of different reactions, uh, lots of hugs, uh, hearts. Yeah, I think out now our relationship better than ever before. You don't take anything for granted anymore. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, and I mean, I think that's what war does. So any questions yet? Everybody's just sitting so quietly. Okay, so. I, I was going to say yes, one go thing ahead. for Yulia. 
you don't have to feel like you can't complain. Everybody's in different situation and you have your own struggle, so it's okay. It doesn't make you weak. It doesn't make you ungrateful. That's your story and what you struggle is real, so it's okay. So share that. Thank you so yeah. much for support. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful, Jinko, so well said. All right, Rebecca. Who is Rebecca Chartrand? Well, th first of all, I want to thank both of you, uh, Junko and Yulia, for uh, sharing your stories. Very powerful. I could really feel the emotion in here. And thank you, Tracy, for your invitation. Um, I'm Rebecca Chartrand. My traditional name is Wapanuikwe Dishnikas. Um, I'm from uh, Treaty 4 territory. I recognize myself as an Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Métis woman. I have some Scottish and French in my background as well, so it's, it's very reflective of this geography and its history. We were talking about that earlier. Um, most of my work has been in the area of education the last 30 years. Um, I'm a mother of two. I have a son named Chad, he's here, and um, my daughter Serena, who's 20. So uh, most of my work has been in the area of Indigenous education under that umbrella within the education system. And um, I guess for the most part, it's my journey has been about trying to figure out where I fit in, where I fit in um, as an Indigenous woman in my own homeland. Um, because as you know, we've experienced eraser, a complete um, eraser of who we are as, as a people in our own homelands, um, what we now call Canada. And so a lot of my work has been about um, educating people and trying to be a bridge builder and you know, bringing people and calling them in to um, understand our stories and our experiences here as Indigenous peoples. So thank you for sharing your stories because when I think about um, the vulnerability that it takes to share your stories, it's so important. And um, that's common practice in the way we sit. So I'm thinking of this more as a sharing circle and just thinking how I can add to this conversation. Um, for the most part, um, when, I, when I think about some of the work that I'm doing now, it's really under the umbrella of anti-racism. So looking at a lot of the power dynamics that exist within our society today, um, so when we talk about racism, um, often we think about, you know, the interpersonal, maybe some of the racial slurs that people hear or said back and forth. But we don't necessarily talk about like the institutional and the systemic racism that continue to bear down and have impact on um, not only us as Indigenous people, but people of colour. And um, so I think though that work's really important. And when I think about you know, where our work intersects or where our experiences intersect, whether that's as women or people that are coming through traumas, different types of trauma, whether it's, you know, coming from war-torn countries or still living with this low-intensity warfare. And to me, that's what racism is. It's, it's ongoing and it's persistent and, it, and it's very wearing. And um, so some of the things that are really important for me to recognize and to continue to speak about are, you know, really being aware of like the um, the context that we're living in, right? Um, as an Indigenous person, um, I recognize that, you know, we do live in a diverse landscape. It's not what it once used to be, and we have to continue to find ways to, you know, to share these spaces together, to coexist, and to really um, do that in a way that um, allows us to 
be fully present. So thank you again for sharing your stories. Um, I think we still have a long ways to go from my perspective as an Indigenous person. Um, you know, we think about this geography specifically. We have the highest number of Indigenous people here in a city than anywhere else in Canada. But we're also the, um, you know, we, our, our population has been decimated, right? So when we look at that, we're still recovering, we're still picking up the pieces too. You know, we have the highest number of um, missing and murdered Indigenous women within these territories. We have been the highest number of kids in care than anywhere in the entire world, not just in Canada, but the entire world. We have over 10,000 kids in care. So when we talk about residential schools being a thing of the past or the last one closing in 1996, um, we're really, we've seen like a continuation of children being taken from our homes and placed into non-Aboriginal families. So, so our families are still very fractured in that sense and we're still trying to we're still trying to strengthen that sense of family, but we're, we have these systems that are working against us and doing that. And so what you're seeing on the streets here in Winnipeg in terms of homelessness is you see our people. You see our people because, you know, there's all of these different scenarios that happen. Um, when you think about our First Nations communities, which some people refer to as reserves, um, our people were isolated and segregated from the rest of Canada while it was developing. And, and often to places, um, you know, parcels of land that were no good for farming, no good for economic development. So we've basically been kept out of sight and out of mind from the rest of Canadians as this country was developing. And is it changing? Is it getting better? Um, well, we could look at Wab Canoe, right? He's uh, our first Indigenous Premier of Manitoba. And we also have Bernadette Smith and Hani Fontaine, who are the first First Nations ministers in Canada as well. So some real historic um, and monumental events that are happening. And so that could be seen as an indicator that things are getting better. And I'd like to think so because I've been in the education system for 20, 25, 30 years now. So it's like, okay, all the education is paying off. People are finally seeing that there's a need to include us to be part of the leadership that determines the, the way this country goes. So, but I also have my own lived experience too. And I know we have a long way to go. So when I think about daily microaggressions, um, and for, you know, our people who are, um, when you think about skin color, you know, the darker you are, the more racism you're going to experience. And so I've dealt with that in my own family as well, you know, with people just not being comfortable with their skin color. And, um, you know, because we know the benefits of being white or white passing. So there's a long ways to go. And um, I think in the work that we do, um, you know, we, we have to continue to create space for each other so that we can all show up, so that we can learn from um, one another and, um, you know, and, and strengthen that circle because that's what the treaties were. The treaties were about mutual benefit and mutual obligation for people, but those are broken treaty promises. So when I think about, you know, this historical event with Wab Canoe being our new premier, for me, it's like coming full circle. We've finally come full circle to the intent of the treaties where we were supposed to work together to ensure that everybody was taken care of. And hopefully, you know, um, with our leadership now in place that we can, you know, go back to that and ensure that we have space for everybody to, um, to coexist. Rebecca, what about truth and reconciliation? How far have we come with that? 
Well, that's a good question. <laughs> if I look at the uh, 94 calls to action and the work that has been done across the country, we've really only addressed eight of the 94 calls to action. And they are, um, there is a group out at um, Yellowhead College, um, and um, they're basically a bit of a watchdog in terms of what the, um, you know, what, what the Canadian government and you know, um, the rest of Canada is doing to address the calls to action. So when we think about what, which items are being addressed, they're kind of like the easier ones, right? So, but we really have to look at the ways in which you know, our systems, like I said, continue to impact and bear down on our people. Um, so we're hearing common terms today like economic reconciliation, for example. So what does that mean? Well, it means that our people didn't have opportunities to grow into the economy and every effort that was made to grow into the economy, well, there was another law or another, you know, there was a rule book that was very specific for Indigenous peoples that really prohibited and limited any opportunity that they had to grow, whether it was farming or um, developing business, even going to school. Like, I remember um, Ovid Mercury in the 1960s, he can count on one hand how many Indigenous people were going to universities because you had to give up your identity to go to university. So what did that mean? You had to leave your community. You had no rights to live in the community anymore. If you died, you didn't have rights to be buried in the community. So people don't understand that, um, you know, the type of racism that we've experienced as a people, it, it, it's ongoing. And um, because we still have the Indian Act in place today. <laughs> so um, if, our, if our people want to start a business on reserve, it's much different than starting reserve in, you know, in, in the city here, for example. There's hoops to jump through. Um, so I think it's really important to understand those pieces when we're looking at um, you know, concepts of oppression, of um, institutional and systemic racism. As a people, our experience is still very unique in this country um, as Canadians because we continue to deal with these oppressive um, systems that um, aren't giving us full participation as the rest of Canadians. And so, so that's the work that I do, you know, and I'm, and I'm happy to do that work because it gives me a sense of place and purpose um, in the world, in the work that I'm doing. And, at the end of the day, like I want my kids to have the same opportunity as everybody else. I want them to feel confident about who they are. I want them to feel that, you know, this is a great country, and you know, and we can all work and get along. And and um, yeah, so <laughs> so that's what I do, and that's where my heart is is um, is just in in revitalizing that and trying to ensure that we're strengthening ourselves as individuals, as families, as communities, and as nations. I find it hard to believe that this is 2023 and we're still, we're still doing this. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, and you, we have these incredible women, we're going to hear from Heba too, and she's probably got a lot to add to that too as well. Um, does anybody have any questions out there now? Could be for anything, yes, go ahead. Yeah, whoever you want to ask, Marley will get the mic. Yeah, or, yeah. Um, I'm wondering, what do you think is the most important for us to do on a personal level to bring us closer to addressing the calls to action? Okay, oh, 
That's a good question. Should I answer that yeah, one? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I think we could all have an opinion on that one. <coughs> but I think our work as Indigenous people is like our, our job is in telling our truth, in speaking our truth, because when we think about our history, our voice was denied. And that's part of the oppressive experience that we had. Um, because when you think about segregation and isolation, like our people weren't allowed to speak their truth. And that was part of the rule book. We couldn't raise money so that our people could hire um, a lawyer <laughs> to address the issues of the breaking of treaty promises, for example. So, and then the learned behavior from residential school, the silencing, right? The silencing of the children, um, the abuse of children. So I think it's important for us to find our voice and to find that, vul that vulnerability um, to speak our truth. Um, and it's, it's easier said than done um, for some people, especially when it's a, it's a learned behavior. And I think for the rest of Canadians, um, it's the reconciliation part. It's recognizing that the treaties cr created an opportunity for newcomers, whether whether your family has been here for just seven generations or if you're arriving tomorrow, the treaties gave the opportunity for people to settle into these territories and to coexist, and to coexist in a way that was about mutual benefit and mutual obligation. That has not changed. And so when we think about that, we have to think about the culture of caring that was created with those treaties. So when we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, or anti-racism work, these are not new concepts. These were embedded in the treaties. The understanding that our landscape was changing because newcomers were coming in and you know, diversity was a reality. Inclusion is when you make space for people and you say, okay, yes, let's, there's room for one more in the circle. There's always room for one more. Equity takes us back to that mutual benefit, mutual obligation. So, so, and I've had many conversations with lots of people about this as well. So, um, you know, the work around Black Lives Matter, the 215, you know, the families that are fleeing from war-torn countries, like, this stuff is ongoing. And so we, again, I think for me, it comes back to that culture of caring is calling people in, as opposed to calling people out, calling people in, you know, from a place, um, not only from your head, because it's the right thing to do from a place from your heart. And so when we think about the work about racism, it really is that dehumanizing process. Like that's what racism is. It's like, it doesn't allow people to fully show up and it doesn't allow us to see each other beyond you know, our physical selves. So, so once we can um, think about those things and when we think about reconciliation, it really is just about recognizing that we're all human beings and that we need to find ways to coexist together and um, create that space of caring for one another. Yeah. So I like that. I think that's really true. Calling people in instead of calling people out. Beautiful. Is there anybody else right now that has anything? Um, I have a question for, you brought your mom. Yeah. Maybe she could talk a little bit you just heard your daughter Rebecca talking about things, and I, I, and too learning everything now about the indigenous culture, about residential schools, about the '60s scoop, um, totally changed everything. You know that we were taught in history books. How do you feel now? How far have we come? 
far. Uh, I believe that <clears throat> from my experience, <clears throat> I moved to the city when, well, my mother brought us to the city when I was six years old. I spoke only Ojibwe from my community that spoke Ojibwe and a little bit of French. And moving into the city um, and being put in, in a public school system where I couldn't speak my language was, was um, I guess, devastating for me because there was no one there to talk to in my language. And I'd like to say in those days, um, I was uh, in grade six, grade one. And this is when people were fleeing from, from other countries to coming to Canada. So I was with a lot of children who immigrated from other countries. There was Jewish, German, Polish, Ukrainian. All those people were coming in from, the, from, from different countries. And I went to school with them. So we all couldn't speak English, but we all played together. So <clears throat> the teacher would learn, teach us how to, to, you know, speak English. And through those years, we remained uh, friends until grade eight. That's when um, I lost friends because there was history books where there was derogatory words in those days. In grade eight, there were, they were teaching them in history books. Yeah. So I ended up, you know, quitting school. <laughs> but it took me a few years. I always wanted to go back to school, so I went to upgrade myself in my late 20s. And I came back stronger than I am than I was before. And I agree with my daughter perfectly. You know, we're still struggling. I see those. I'm a teacher myself. I taught in the Winnipeg School Division, Seven Oaks, as an elder, CFS work support worker. And I worked. I never been up north. And um, I met a friend at a restaurant, and she, you know, she said to me, why don't you come and work up north? And so I thought about it, and I said, well, okay, I'll give it a try. I've never been that far north. I won't say the communities I was in, but, you know, these places were isolated. The kids are isolated from the outside world to this day. I couldn't believe. Um, if they came into the city, um, you know, they, they got lost. They were picked up and put into gangs right away because they did not know. And I've seen this. Other communities, beautiful fishing area communities, very clean, but yet the kids were isolated. A lot of suicides. And it was tragic. You know, suicides every, maybe every month. A young 12-year-old, you hear a nine-year-old hanging themselves. You know, I learned a lot just by, you know, 
spreading my ring, wings and going up and visiting these communities. Well, we thank you. Mm -hmm. And we thank you for sharing. So we do have still a lot of work to do, don't we? A lot. Mm -hmm. yes, well, segue now to Heba. Uh, thank you for sharing. I, my heart feels really sad that we're all here just talking about sadness, really, than like things that empower us. And that being said, I am immensely grateful to be on Treaty One territory and have this opportunity to be here and grow and not live in fear of my life, uh, which is, you know, the reason my parents came. So I'm Egyptian Canadian, but I feel like part of my advocacy that I do is I speak about the oppression and structural issues that happen to Arab women. So being an Arab woman is the largest part of my identity. Clearly, if you look at me, I'm very Arab. But also, I'm not a hijabi woman, like you know, a woman that wears a hijab. So it's different the kind of oppression I am facing versus a woman who is a straight representation of her religion. Um, but that being said, I am a business owner and I own halal business stores, right? I own a Middle Eastern grocery store, I own a Middle Eastern restaurant where our food is halal, and I own a hookah bar. And part of this is I love to eat. And food is one of my favorite parts of my culture. And it's one of the most easiest ways, I think, to introduce people to your culture in a safe way. And we know this, actually, this is like proven, right? With over a good meal, people feel safe, they feel more comfortable, and more dialogue can happen. And when I first moved to Winnipeg in 2011, 12? Yeah, 2012, I felt like when I moved here, I was like, oh, there's no Middle Eastern restaurants. Like, you know, like, it was very small. And I remember the first day I moved here, I had a friend who had a friend who lived in Winnipeg, and they were just lovely enough to meet up with me. And I had told him, I was like, I'm going to open up a hookah bar. Like, this is what I'm going to do, because this is what I love to do. And he's like, yeah, OK, cool. You know, seven years, like six years later, five years later, I don't know, I have no perception of time anymore. but. I opened up my hookah bar and when we, my business partner and I, we opened this space, it was really important for me to make it a space that women felt comfortable and other people of color felt comfortable that they could have a space for themselves where they could see themselves represented. And our mandate is, and it still is, we hire newcomers to Canada. That is our mandate because we saw ourselves, like we see ourselves in these people, right? Like where when you come here, people don't want to hire you. you you don't sound the same, you don't look the same, and when you don't have Canadian experience, it just it's really hard to set your like put your foot in the door. And I just remember we had this article written by us. It was like this beautiful article by CBC, I believe it was Now or Never. And it was about how we hire uh, refugees, specifically Syrians at that time. And <laughs> crazy, like the day after the restaurant is full and this man clearly very well intending, you know, like clearly wants to support us and wants to show how like welcoming he is. He tells me, he's like, you don't look like a refugee. And you know, part of my identity is also I'm a peace scholar. So in being a peace scholar, I'm pursuing my PhD in peace and conflict studies at the University of Manitoba, is I believe in advocating for peace on a community and personal level. So you know when like a child, you know when they're asking you why, why, why? I kind of just like to do this sometimes because I know that his intent was not bad and I know his intent was not to make me feel any sort of way, but I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, like I just didn't think you would look like this or speak like this. And I'm just like, okay, like what did you expect? Right, and then when and you ask this moment, the person catches himself and they're like, oh, right? And to me, like sometimes, I, I think I'm very grateful 
in the sense that my accent has you know, partly because when I first moved here, people couldn't understand my accent, right? Like, if you've ever heard, like, an Egyptian accent, it's very heavy. And we don't have the P's, and we don't have the th, and, like, there's a few different noises that don't exist in Arabic. So, you know, I, I made myself some Canadian friends, and I started picking up their accents and learning, like, how do I sound more like you so people can understand me? But in having this privilege, I've learned it's really important for me to advocate for people in my community and other communities of colors that don't have the same structural knowledge in how to deal with oppression that's going on. Or how to, like, or maybe call in someone versus calling them out on something that's happening where you know it's happening because you're a person of color, right? Like, growing up, I would totally, like, see my mother, like, who's very white looking, but, like, very, like, very, very heavy accent and, like, situations happen, and I'm like, no. This is not okay, right? But I've also, like, as an Arab woman, there's two stereotypes that exist for us. It's you're either this oppressed, silenced woman, which I never understood. I'm like, have you ever met an Arab woman? Because we're all, like, very strong, very opinionated, and, like, you know, just very present in our homes or our communities. Uh, or you're seen as aggressive and angry. And so, which is unfortunate, right? Because we're seen as aggressive or angry because we don't have the opportunities to change the way we're perceived, right? Because you're silenced or you're not, and, and like automatically because like just the way you speak, you know, Arabs were very loud people, you know, like, and I'm very loud, you know? But like, it's, it's all like right away, like if you are saying something, it's you're automatically silenced. And this kind of leads me to my point where sometimes I feel, as an Arab community, we are just simply tolerated. We're like, you know, again, I'm incredibly grateful to be here, but you are simply tolerated. And you're tolerated as long as, and you're welcome as long as you are speaking the narrative that is acceptable. But the second you move away from this narrative, you are troublesome, you are causing problems, and it's really easy to silence a group of people. And, you know, we see this right now in the Gaza conflict, and I'm not uh, like a foreign, um, foreign affairs expert, political scientist, or religion scholar, but we're not talking about this, right? But I feel very deeply heartbroken that in a world, we can see children being bombed, not have water, not have electricity, and we can justify this through anything. And I feel really sad for people at the same time that because we no longer believe in the ideology of one group of people, we somehow have dehumanized this group of people. And, you know, in my educational like, experience, so I, I, I believe in dialogue, right? So this like circle. But in a circle, what happens to me, I believe, you have to be willing to listen. You're gonna hear things you don't wanna hear. You're going to hear opinions that are different than yours, but you have to be tolerant, and you have to be willing to listen. And this is really important, especially because we live in this world of social media, where it is incredibly easy for people to just scroll and you're not checking your facts, you're not checking where this is coming. And words are so important because it is very easy to spread hate and the idea of hate and misinformation. And maybe this is not what the person is thinking when they're, when they're posting, but this is what's happening. So I, I feel really, I, I don't know how we are in this country, a country that is really multicultural and we're so lucky because we are welcomed here and we are accepted, yet we can't comp have conversations with other groups of people. And I, like, I just, I, I don't even really know what the word is to use because it's, I don't think it's acceptable, right? But you have to create a common 
narrative, you have to see people as human because we really are ultimately. And unfortunately, we don't have the ability to change what happens on an international level. But when you are living with your neighbor, and we know this historically, right? We know this in wars like Bosnia, we know this in Rwanda, where it is very easy for humans to turn on one another if you are fed so much propaganda, right? When you are living neighbors side by side and all of a sudden you see yourself as an enemy, overnight, you know, genocides are committed by people you knew and you loved. And this is really, to me, again, like I just, I, I think we have to learn from history and question things and question why are we being taught to hate another individual because we are not our governments. And to me, like, you know, sometimes people come into my restaurant and we're, we're a Middle Eastern restaurant and I can tell they feel uncomfortable. And I'm like, just eat my hummus. You know, like eat my hummus and we're gonna have a little dialogue if you feel uncomfortable and, we're, and you're gonna see me as a human and I'm gonna see you as a human. And hopefully, you know, this changes. Because when you're not like, ag again, this idea of humanization is so important and in a world that is so digital now, it's, I feel like it's become much easier to just forget the other person in front of you as a human, like you were seeing with the child that was like wanting to learn about atomic bombs, right? When you're playing a video game, it's really easy to kill, like, and I see this with my nephew, right? You are killing people on TV, but you're not understanding that these people in real life are actually humans that are going to die and this is gonna have severe repercussions on them. But on a video game, it's not like that. So I think our role is to ensure we are educating other people and speaking about our truths and speaking about our realities and ensuring we're doing it in a way that's inclusive and allows people to question without being shut down. A question for you, mm -hmm. What barriers did you face as a businesswoman? Oh, um, you, you know, the fact that I'm a woman for sure is like a major obstacle for a lot of people. You know, they will like, they will see my business partner and they'll be like, oh, you own the store and you're the server here. And I, I, I laugh, you know, I'm like, if this is what you want to believe, sure. But, and then they eventually find out, right? Because I'm really grateful and like my customers are like returning customers. And then they eventually, they address it themselves. They're like, oh, I didn't realize you own this business, right? Or sometimes people think you're just incapable. Um, but then again, because I'm an Arab woman, there's just different barriers where I feel like people are talking down to me you know, as if I can't understand what you're saying or, and this happens like, I, I think on like, a r pretty often, right? Where someone is talking down to me or all of a sudden they're talking to me really slowly. And I'm just like, why are you doing this? Like, so, but it's, I think sometimes things happen unintentionally or without the knowledge or background, right? And you just kind of gotta find a way to address this in a nice, gentle way, right? Because I, I also believe if a conversation is aggressive, the other side is just gonna shut down and this conversation isn't gonna happen. Mm -hmm. But I also believe in, I'm gonna tell you you did something that makes me feel upset. Because if I don't tell you it's gonna, like you made me feel upset, what's gonna happen when the other woman that barely speaks English comes in, right? Or this little girl that is just learning how to navigate through the world. And I think that is our role as women who have been privileged enough in their positions to speak out and you know, ensure these boundaries are being created. Mm -hmm. And you brought your mom here to today. I did. <laughs> yes, yes. You pretty proud of uh, Eva? I would imagine. Yes, yes. yes. It, how was your experience coming here? Uh, for me, it is different because uh, since I was young, uh, I love my country. Don't take me wrong, but I know I am not gonna stay there. 
uh, always my dream to leave Egypt outside. And when I came to Canada, I was happy. And uh, I started my life in the beginning. I didn't uh, work because I have three kids. I have to raise them. We were uh, been living in Halifax. Uh, it was like I didn't like it because it was like a, a small city. And me, I came from Cairo, all the noise, all the you know, crazy city. Then I, when I uh, moved, they used to do Irish dance. And we have competition here in Montreal. Not here, here in Winnipeg, sorry. And Montreal, as the moment I, uh, I moved to Montreal for the competition, I love it. Because it is a big city, it is reminding me of Egypt and everything. Then I decided to move right away. Uh, to Montreal, uh, I love it, but there is some time, like you see the people with the French, and you know, more French, no English. In the beginning, long, long time ago, like 20 years ago, they were accepted, like, you know, this okay, no problem. Um, but for them, it is the French, I used to uh, give them tutoring and learn French to, you know, adopt the city and the language and everything. But I loved it. I love Canada. I appreciate Canada. But sometimes the people still treat you as uh, like you are not Canadian 100%. And they race a little bit. But that's OK. It is like you cannot do anything about it. But you try to uh, to do your best. Uh, but when Heba decided to move to Winnipeg to do her uh, master, I was worried because she's girl Egyptian culture. You cannot leave your kids. They stay until they get married and then they should move out. But when Heba decided to move, it was a shock, big shock for me. I was so worried and because she's a girl and how she's going to live her life by herself. But she's good. I was proud of her. She did all her dream, and she, I wish she continue. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, so family does play an important part. And then I think I've heard that through all of your stories, right, is to have that foundation and family. And so I'm posing this question to all of us here. Heba, you touched on it. Why don't we have more conversations like this? Like, sorry, I can count, I can count on, I'm on one hand, probably only three friends that are of color. And all the rest of my friends are all, they're all white. Mm -hmm. But why isn't it? I mean, and I, this is, I enjoy this because I am learning so much from every, each and every one of you. But I don't know. Junko, are you the same? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much the same. Just the friends are just organically happen through a community. Mm -hmm. Then this is Japanese Canadian community, so I have Japanese friends, of course. And then through kids' school, the moms, mm -hmm. then wherever they're from, there are lots of uh, from China or Korea or you know, from mm -hmm. Canada. And, but then we don't talk about these things. We no. only talk about the kids' stuff. And sometimes I talk about, I share what I do. <laughs> and they go, OK, that's nice. <laughs> and that's it. It doesn't go anywhere. No, no. So I often try to encourage. And I'm also a board member at the JCAM. So I see the events. I, I plan an event. And I try to promote it. And then I thought, oh, maybe they're interested too, you know, outside of uh, family stuff household and kids and stuff. Maybe it's something totally different from their everyday mm -hmm. life, not being a mom, just being you. Right. And, you know, spark the interest in these topics. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard. It is. I just talk about it, email, 
you know, invite people mm -hmm. and they go, okay, well, I'm busy exactly. or. It's, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not sexy enough or it's, it's just kind it's of icky. Not, it's uncomfortable. It's those uncomfortable conversations. And scary. For people. And scary. Yeah. It, it's scary because you don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, when you're not, and again, see, I think we've gone so far with social media where people are scared to say now that I don't know. Mm -hmm. There is this expectation that everybody should know everything about everything. And, and that's really unrealistic. Like, how are you expected to know everything that's going on in the world? And it's really important to take a step back and be like, you know, I don't know, but I'm willing to educate myself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I grew up, hilarious, my mother brought us up in a very Jewish part of Montreal. And this is really a big part of why I deeply believe in dialogue. So I was the only Arab child in this neighborhood. Everyone around me was Jewish, right? And I remember my first day, and it's really interesting that I even had this idea because I didn't grow up, like my parents are very just humanitarians, but I grew up like, you know, I meet my first Jewish friend and I'm like, mom, I met a Jewish child. Am I allowed to be this person's friend? You know, and I don't know why I remember this. I'm 12. But my mom's like, yeah, did they treat you nicely? I'm like, yes. And she's like, it doesn't matter then. Go be friends. You know, so I, I make these friends because Egypt is very like, you know, we have Muslims and you have Christians and that's relatively it. And we're pretty homogeneous as a country. So then, you know, I had like friends, parents would invite me over for like Jewish holidays, right? They invite me over and I'm learning about their culture. They're learning about my culture. And this part is so important when, because we're living in Canada, you get to meet these people you'd never get to. So when you can like infiltrate each other organically, these connections are really important, especially when political tensions happen. Because sometimes I'm just like, you, you know, and I'm sure it's the same thing for you because again, Russians do not, like they are not representative of their governments or Ukrainians or whatever. Sometimes, you know, it's like, hey, I'm your friend and we grew up together and we loved each other and I love you and you love me. And let's just remember that in this narrative that's going on, right? Or when things are happening with like indigenous people, like you, you, or wh whatever group it is, right? It's when you are able to have a dialogue and, and having a dialogue is really hard, right? To place yourself in that vulnerability where you are telling someone your experience and their experience, right? Especially when it's someone who is on an opposing side of you, who, does, who grew up believing something completely different. It is really hard to have these conversations. But without these conversations, I know this is very narrow-minded, right? I'm not talking about international. But without these conversations, nothing is going to change. Because if I can't see you as Rebecca, and you can't see me as Heba, what's, what's the point of even living on this land together? Right? But it's scary. It's really, really hard to have a dialogue with somebody who is going to shatter everything you believe and make you potentially question everything you've learned. It's hard, mm -hmm. but it's important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. I have, I have yes. a thought on that. Yeah, so, go ahead. Yes. So yeah. you're saying like the majority of your friends are white. I'd have to say that like growing up, the majority of my friends have been indigenous. And I think that has been by choice. And so when I think about all the work that I'm doing now under the umbrella of anti-racism, you know, I had to come with, to terms with the fact that I was afraid of white people. And that was the bias that I had and that I carried with me as an indigenous person because of residential schools, because of broken treaty promises, and because of the things that we know and learn and experience. And so doing this work under this anti-racism um, umbrella has been um, really eye-opening for me too. And, and so it took me a while to feel comfortable around white people because of that. And so now I could say that 
And so if we flip that around, <laughs> you know, like I, I remember one experience where I was asked to speak on a panel for the uh, Canadian Bureau of International Education and the topic was, why is internationalization not working? And so I let everybody, like everybody spoke before me and then what is my turn? I was like, my perspective was completely different than everybody else. I was like, I'm like, I'm sorry, but I don't agree with anything anybody just said because have a look around this room. Look at how diverse this room is. But I said, um, one of the things that we should be looking at is like your experience with Indigenous peoples, your understanding of the treaties, your understanding of the opportunities that those are creating. Because in the conversations that I was having with people at that conference, but then the conversations I've had with diverse groups of people over the years, especially colleagues that I've worked with who've immigrated here, um, three indicators of success when you're integrating successfully into Canada. Good education, good job, and making white friends. And so that, I thought, wow. And so that's what I talked about. I talked a bit about that, and I'm like, okay, so then, where does that leave us as Indigenous peoples? Because what I keep hearing over and over is that, you know, this learned bias, this prejudice towards Indigenous people is learned before, even pe before people even get here in these Canada schools. They're learning that, you know, if you want to do well and be well and stay safe, stay away from the Indigenous peoples, you know. And so, so these are the things that I think are really important to address um, when we're thinking about these relationships and this dialogue and holding up the mirror and going like, okay, what do I need to deal with in order to ensure that I'm creating space for everybody? Like, I'm happy to say that I have white friends, <laughs> but when I was younger, like it, it, I, I was afraid and I had to really think about where that came from. And some of it comes from lived experience. You know, we talk about, you know, like the police and the RCMP are there to protect us and keep us safe, but for us as First Nations, the RCMP were created to keep us isolated and to ensure that like our people did not leave the reserve. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of violence and there was violence that, you know, I had um, witnessed as a little girl. And, um, you know, and so those are things that stay, that stay with you. And so our experience is different. And that's why I think this type of dialogue is really important. And, and I think part of it too is for a lot of the newcomers here is to learn about the Indigenous history, the real history, the true stories that you've spoken about and your mom has, and Heba's story and, and your mom's story too as well, and Nuko's. I mean, the, all these conversations need to happen. So, like your son there, playfully kicking a soccer ball around, no cares in the world. Gosh, don't we wish that we were nine years old again? And now we sit here knowing so much, but you know it's just such a great opportunity. Uh, Yulia, I wanted to ask you, you've been here now, you've had this opportunity to share your story, you've got some young friends there too as well. What more can we do and what would you like to do? Now that you're here, you said you're safe, um, but there's still a lot of work to do, isn't there? So some final thoughts. Uh, so Rebecca, and thank you for your work because thank you for allowing us, like millions of Ukrainians, and I not just found safety here, but also an opportunity to rebuild my life from scratch. And I think for lots of Ukrainians, 
it's just the best opportunity because this is the only place where we can feel safe. And now, more than ever, we appreciate that we can be safe. So I think, what should we do? I know lots of Ukrainians want to learn more about indigenous culture and my friends and I, we always, we often have a conversation about that. So I'm wondering if you have some books or maybe movies to recommend us, like where should we start and what would be like the basic books or article we should start to learn to read? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good question. Thank you. And um, I think there's so many resources out there today. Um, one book that comes to mind is 21 Things You Didn't Know About the Indian Act. Mm -hmm. And it just, oh, it's a very easy read and it outlines like, um, you know, a lot of the rules. Again, it's a different rule book for Indigenous peoples, but it gives you an overview of um, the oppression, like the systematic institutionalized oppression against um, Indigenous peoples. Um, and also an understanding that um, that system of oppression is not it's not gone. <laughs> it's still here. I mean, we're still trying to work through it and our people are still trying to um, assume, um, you know, authority over different parts of our lives. Um, one of them being, you know, economic development, education, you know, so when you think about the, the reserve system, like, we don't necessarily operate, well, we operate with the public school system, but we're governed federally. So it, it, there's still all of these jurisdictional issues. Um, Another book I think that's just great in general, and it doesn't speak specifically about Indigenous history, but I think it's a great book to read. It's called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, and it's stories the history of whiteness and helping us understand like how this concept of whiteness is always running in the background of all of us because we're socialized into the, these systems. And so we, we may not be able to articulate them, but we feel them and we sense them and we're always trying to harmonize with them because we don't want to disrupt the relationships that we have with people in our communities and especially within our workplaces because to disharmonize with that and to speak up or against you know, what the status quo is, it could mean a loss of job, a loss of friends or like retaliation. And so people are always harmonizing and so there's these power dynamics that we're always intuitively aware of and so so the book cast does a really good job um, of, of, of helping us understand, you know, how this came to be and how we're all, you know, maybe not all, but, you know, there's, there's benefits in it. And, um, and so when I think about my experience, like I'm, I'm lighter than, you know, my son is. So my experience is different than him, but I'm seeing the world through his eyes. He is darker than me and his experience is different than me. And so he's having a much different experience. And so I'm trying to, I'm seeing the world through his eyes and I'm being much more aware and attuned to everything that's going on. So I'm almost like hyper aware of everything. And, and it, it's a very painful space to constantly be in because you're wanting your son or your children to have a sense of belonging in the spaces that they're in. And I don't think that his experiences in, in our systems, like in our education systems, are that for children of color, especially indigenous children. 
And so that could be really disheartening. That has been really disheartening for me because I've spent my whole career in this education system under the umbrella of Indigenous education, trying to create these relationships to avoid this type of thing. And here it is right in front of me. And so, so I'm really happy that I'm doing this work under the umbrella of anti-racism, but we still have a long ways to go. And to try and do it in the best way possible so that, you know, so my son could feel like he could show up but I want every other kid to show up too. So it's like, you know, how do we do that? It's just humanizing all of these different experiences and creating the space and holding the space so that everybody could tell their story. Because, you know, obviously there's no monopoly on suffering, right? We all suffer and continue to suffer in different ways. And the only way that we're gonna, you know, make it through all this is if we strengthen our relationships and for me as an indigenous woman and a mother and when i think about our whole history and the impact that it continues to have on us like our families are still being torn apart not only by you know um, the intergenerational effects of residential school racism 60 scoops um, cfs is still taking kids it's, we're trying to piece that together and sometimes we're having to adopt people, you know, to be an auntie, to be an uncle, because we don't have that or we don't have people that are, you know, healthy because we're losing a lot of people to addictions, you know, because of that history. So, so that's where we're at. And so when I think about how do we get through this, I think we need to adopt each other. <laughs> we need to say, yeah, Okay, I, I care enough about you that, you know, that you're, the, the challenges that you're dealing with yeah. are important to all of us, yeah. And the way that I feel about your challenges, like hearing about everything you said was really moving and so important for me to hear. And yet there's still so many stories that we need to hear. Often we do not underestimate the power of these stories and it's so important to listen and very often when we read some stories on social media we don't feel it that way and just only when we see each other and we share it in person it goes inside our hearts so I think it's important to have these conversations every time when I'm having a conversation like this I understand how but I need to learn a lot, a lot. I know that I cannot know everything about what's going on in the world, but since I'm living in Canada, I need to know not only my personal story, but also stories of different cultures. That way I can understand people who are surrounded me, and then I can understand more and know more about myself as well. So thank you very much, Tracy, for having us, for organizing this event. I think. It was very powerful. Oh, well, I mean, this is all what it's supposed to be. Create the conversation, and I would never have met either one of you if we didn't have this conversation. And I want to thank all of you for joining us and everybody that's joining us on the live stream. This has been so exciting. Junko, you get the final word. This was, you know, because of a conversation I had with you, and there's just so much more to learn, I know, but you just see things, I think, maybe because you came here as an immigrant. You weren't born here. You viewed our way of life differently and you opened up my eyes. Yeah. And I'm thanking, thank you. thanking this led to this wonderful relationship. Yeah, I think um, just thinking back last few years because of COVID, that changed a lot of uh, different uh, 
the way we live and we adopted to Zoom or the online meetings more and then the, the work style that's shifted completely. And, uh, and after that, now we can see each other in person. And I think we were taking that for granted for a long time. And now we could actually go out without restriction, see people, go for dinner, meet for drinks, or do this in person without masks. And that's huge. And I feel like, well, what an opportunity to meet people in person and really share the conversation. And like that sharing circle that you know, we can do. I think if we could have more of that, you know, in different level of um, opportunity, the community center or school or workplace, we should take a time to have a sharing circle and check in to each other because everybody's have their own stories, struggles. But if we have the time to share instead of pressing down deep down in your you know, belly, that's not good and that would affect other things. So I feel like if we have more sharing circle, conversation like that, I think it's all good. Yeah, people will feel better. Yes. And that would affect other people to feel better too. So well, I think I feel a little bit better. Yes, yes, a little bit. Heba, yeah. <laughs> I, I just have like one last thing. Yeah. I think something is really like I'll be so upset at myself if I don't say this. Um, I just I want to tell everyone the words you use are so important, especially for our politicians, for our people that are in charge of our educational institutions. And this is really important when you are teaching children where they belong and how they be, you, they can belong. You know, when you are telling children they can only be part of their identity and to feel ashamed of the rest, you are creating. Uh, a fear and you're creating self-loathing and they won't be able to reach their full potential. I'm really heartbroken when I'm, I'm seeing the same narrative, right? Where I feel a rise in Islamophobia is happening, right? And I think this kind of relates to people using the words terrorist numerous times. Um, you know, just not understanding that people are not their governments. And I'm, I think it's just really important that when you are talking, please think of the words you're using and how this affects a generation of children who you don't want to be self-loathing and scared to be a part of their identity because their identity is trying to be erased because it does not fit the narrative. When you have educational institutions that are trying to expel students for speaking out about their ancestries' experiences, it's really important for people that have voices to ensure the words they are using are important and inclusive and creating peace within this beautiful city that we live in. So well put. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And on that note, we want to thank all of you. I especially want to thank the Japanese Cultural Center for allowing us to be here. And everyone, maybe have that conversation today, tomorrow, the next day, the next month. But engage in conversation and really get to know that person. And I think we're just one step closer then to making this world a better place. Thank you to all of you who have joined us, and we'll see you next time on Hue at Home.
I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.